Um, we'll begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 4 and read through verse uh, 42, which is why, again, we'll let you stay seated. Uh, would you give your attention to the reading of God's word? Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem uh, will you worship the father. You will worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to embrace this, your word. And would you even be so gracious and kind as to allow my voice to last uh, through the sermon. Uh, all for the honor and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, it is uh, obvious to everyone around us, I think, that we're in the middle of harvest season. If the sneezing and the sniffling and the dust in the air uh, doesn't give it away, then it's the, uh, the Athens traffic jam. You know, the Athens traffic jam. Uh, you know you live in a small town when you get frustrated that you're stuck behind a combine a grain cart, and then two trucks towing the headers for the combine on their way to the next field. That's your idea of entirely too much traffic. It's exactly the world we live in right now. Uh, our passage this morning is about a different harvest. And as it turns out, one that actually doesn't have a season, that isn't limited to a few short weeks in the fall. First, I want you to see uh, Jesus bringing in the harvest. He's, he's left Judea. He's on his way to Galilee and he has to pass through uh, Samaria and he comes to a town, Sychar. There's a, a well there and it's been um, it was it was given by Jacob to Joseph. Joseph actually is, is buried not too far away from um, this well. But there's a problem, and, and John points out the problem in verse 6. It's noon. It's the sixth hour. That's Jewish clock keeping, right? They start usually sort of 6 a.m., so the sixth hour is noon. The twelfth hour will be 6 p.m. It's the middle of the day. Here's the problem. Nobody comes to get water in the middle of the day. It's too hot. It's too dry. You go first thing in the morning, you go in the evening, you may do both. But it seems like the likely, at least humanly speaking, it seems like the likelihood of Jesus finding anybody to give him something to drink from that well is pretty close to zero. But can I, can I make a brief application already? Um, did you notice the description of Jesus in verse 6. 
He's tired. And he's thirsty. He's been traveling. He's dusty. He's worn out. That's not supposed to be true of the person in the first couple of verses of John's gospel. Right? Don't forget, don't miss that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like, don't skip, don't lose sight of the first two verses of John's gospel when you read, wait a minute. This is just yet another reminder that the eternal Word of God actually took on flesh and knows your infirmities. He got tired. He got thirsty. He, he, he was worn out and tired from traveling. You know, they were walking, right? They, didn't, they weren't hopping in their air-conditioned cars, pulling up Google Maps, you know, checking the Waze app. On their they're, they're stuck walking. And Jesus knows what it's like to be tired and weary and thirsty and to need to sit down at a well hoping for something to drink. That's already an encouragement for us. Jesus knows our infirmities. But Jesus sits on this, uh, the edge of this well uh, and he's waiting, hoping someone will come and give him a drink. And the impression at least given in verses 6 through 7 is that he didn't really have to wait that long. Now, we don't know, but it certainly seems like, at least the way John writes uh, this chapter, that he's not sitting there very long before suddenly a woman comes from town, from Samaria. A Samaritan woman comes out uh, to draw her own water. And again, alarm bells go off, warning signs. All the, the spidey senses go off in your head. There's something not right about this. And what we find is that through all of this, in, um, in, in bringing in the harvest, Jesus first has to overcome obstacles. Because you see, the only people who come at noon to get water, the only women coming to a well in the middle of the hot part of the day to get their water are the women that none of the other women in town will have anything to do with. The only person coming to a well at noon is the only person that the rest of the town wants nowhere near them. And you quickly discover this woman has questionable morals at best. Um, she's, she's, she's not there during the cool part of the day. She's there in the middle of the day. Uh, the the picture painted is of a a, a woman who um, has really sketchy morals at best. We don't know this yet. She doesn't know this yet, but we'll find out, right, in verse 18, that, that Jesus actually knows her inside and out. He knows, okay, this the man you're with now is not your husband. You've had five husbands. I know your story. And so there's the the morality issue at stake there. You see, that's the kind of woman that comes in the morning and all the other women whisper and point and jeer and glare at and, and might even say, don't you dare come near my husband. 
Don't you dare come anywhere near us. She has to come in the middle of the day. And so Jesus is willing to to overcome these obstacles as he's bringing in this harvest. He knows her relationship status. And yet he still says, give me a drink. But that's not the only hurdle. That's not the only obstacle. In fact, it may not even be the biggest obstacle because over and over again, we see Jesus interacting with the, the people of, of at least um, uh, that the culture would say those are questionable people. That, that, this may not even be the, the biggest obstacle because um, did you notice in verse 9 her response to him? It's almost a rebuke. How is it that you, a Jew... And, and, of course, implied there is a man asking me, a woman of Samaria. There's multiple strikes here. He's a man, she's a female. They don't speak in public. That was common, not just in Jewish Hebrew culture. That was common in Greco-Roman culture. There's even a, um, a, a Jewish uh, law of sorts um, warning against forbidding men, uh, rabbinical law forbidding men from speaking to women in public, even if it's their wife. And so here, out in the middle of town, the middle of this area at this well, Jesus is willing to speak to her, a woman. But he's a Jew; she's a Samaritan. Um, and, and interestingly enough, she remains nameless throughout the whole passage. We never know who this woman is. Now, in case you're not up to speed on your Old Testament history, you have to, you have to run through the entire Old Testament in like four sentences or less, right? Um, but if you remember back after um, Saul, David, Solomon, after Solomon was king of Israel, the, the nation split into the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Israel in the north was conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And they would take the best and the brightest and take them elsewhere. And then they would transplant other conquered peoples into Israel. When they conquered places, this was sort of standard practice for them. They would, they would take some of those people away and put them somewhere else. And they would bring other conquered, conquered peoples and mix them in with the Israelites. They left kind of the, the poorer uh, of the Israelites and then brought these conquered people in. And the Samaritans were the product of those intermarriages. Now, this is where you have to kind of remind people, maybe not so much here in this room, but just in case someone in this room or just in case someone listens online, that's not a warning against marrying other races or other. It's a warning against marrying other religions, right? The issue was you don't marry outside the covenant community. And so the Samaritans are the, the half-breeds. They're, they're, they trace their genealogy back to Jacob. But only through part of their ancestry. The other part is Assyrian, foreign, something else, some other idolatrous religion. And so Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. In fact, John gives us that little notation at the end of verse 9. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. There are 
three strikes against her. Between her, her moral, her questionable morals, her femaleness, her Samaritanness, Jesus is willing to overcome all of those obstacles in order to bring in this harvest. But then as he interacts with this, with this lady, with this woman, he then goes on, verses 10 to 12, to expose her need. She literally has no idea she's talk, who she's talking to. She, she just thinks she's talking to some Jewish guy, right? You, you get that even from uh, verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink? Like, she doesn't know who this is. Perhaps the stories of the story of changing water into wine in Cana hasn't reached her yet. Perhaps she has no idea who Nicodemus is in that whole conversation. She has no idea about the, the temple destruction conversation in Jerusalem. But he then exposes her need. Notice in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have given him. My, my guess is you read that verse and you think of the water as the gift. That's not the case. Jesus is the gift. If you knew the gift of God, me, the one who's speaking with you, the one who's talking to you and who it is. That is saying to you, give me a drink. Right? Jesus has called himself the gift of God. And he's talking to the Samaritan like he's not afraid to recognize that he's a gift even for her. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave. Well, what did he give? We well, gave a gift. Well, what's that gift? His unique son. His only son. And so Jesus has been given. And, and Jesus knows he's there as a gift from the father for this woman's salvation. And he goes to her and he says, you have water that you'll need to drink again. You have water that will only last you for a little while. You've come to get water to take back for you and this man at your house to drink, to survive on until you come back again this time tomorrow. Jesus has a, a pattern. Um, there's, there's already, we've already seen this uh, several times where he takes something um, sort of physical, tangible, present, handy, um, something sort of at hand and uses that as a as, a, as, as an illustration of a spiritual need, right? Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And everyone thought he meant the temple they were standing as he meant, standing in. He meant himself. You have to be born again. Nicodemus thought that's just that's just anatomically, biologically impossible. No, no, no. It's spiritual. It's not physical. He's he's done this several times already. And now he does it with her. He offers her, offers her living water. Living water was, um, uh, is a term that basically means bubbling, moving water. So a spring, a stream, a babbling brook. Um, 
they would have called that living water, right? Water that's kind of moving, that's living. It's active. It's, it's, um, it's living water. That's kind of what the term means. And it turns out that this well is fed by an underground spring. And apparently, if I understood what I read correctly, still to this day, this well is fed by an underground spring. Naturally, she thinks that when he says... If you had any idea what you, who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And she's like, hold on a second. Right? She raises all sorts of objections. Right? You, you, you don't got a bucket. It's, it's way down there. Where are you getting this living water? Do you think you're better than Jacob, our father? Um, you know, all of these sorts of objections that she uh, gives to him, she raises in hopes of... Um, I, I, I think she's actually trying to slowly kind of push him away. Of course, she also has another disadvantage. As a Samaritan, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. So they didn't, they didn't read the wisdom books. They didn't read the, the prophets. That wasn't their part of their, uh, their Bible. So she couldn't have known Jeremiah 2.13. Where God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus isn't referring to water. He's not talking about the stuff you've got to drink when you get thirsty. She's not, he's not talking about, you know, when, when you play sports um, when you work outside in the summer, they, whoever they are, they tell you, you have to drink plenty of water. You've got to stay hydrated. You, you don't want to get dehydrated. That's, un, that's unhealthy. But the, the problem is the next day when you go back outside to play sports or work outside, they are going to tell you the exact same thing over again. Hey, by the way, you still need to drink water because I know you drank some yesterday or I know you drank some last Thursday at practice, but today at Thursday practice, you still have to drink more because what you drank last Thursday isn't going to help you this Thursday, right? There's this, this danger of dehydration. And that's his point to this woman. Look, this water will only last you until you're thirsty again, until your cells need it again. And he's exposing to her, you have a different kind of dehydration. It's not physical, it's spiritual. You have a need, you have an emptiness that isn't merely physical, that isn't going to be solved by this water. You need a water that will well up inside you into eternal life. She has a spiritual dehydration that needs a different kind of living water. Jesus overcomes obstacles, exposes her needs, and then finally exposes her sin. Jesus sends her to get her husband in verse 16. And her response sounds kind of quick and sharp. Um, I have no, and maybe even a little defensive, Right? I have no husband. I don't, I don't have... Well, and, and she thought that would be the end of the story. I think she's 
trying to put up walls. I think she's trying to steer the conversation away. And, and with each sort of round of discussion, with, with each round of this conversation, Jesus gets closer and closer and more and more personal. And she gets more and more frustrated by it. And so he, he pierces into her secret life. He knows her past. He knows her present. And she thinks that's too personal. She's, she has sought her meaning, her satisfaction, her pleasure in the things of this world. Isn't that what we just saying? I, I sought for riches. I sought for glory. I, I tried all of these things and none of them has satisfied me. This woman sought her happiness in men and here she is alone, but for Jesus. In the middle of the day, unwelcome from people around her, unloved by the people around her, she has to go alone. To draw her water. And you almost, Hannah, you almost have to think that if Jesus isn't there, is she sort of deafened by the silence of that well? Right? You know, if the, the well becomes a bit of a, a gathering place, right? The watering hole, it's a legit gathering. You, people would come out in the cool of the day and they would collect their water and fill their cisterns and carry them back to the house and that was their collection for the day. Well, it was a social event. Unless you're this woman. And you have to wonder, is she sort of thinking as she's drawing this water all by herself with no one to talk to, no one's talking to her, is she aware of that loneliness? Is she aware of that aloneness? Jesus sort of pierces into her personal private life. And so she does what any self-respecting human being does when a conversation turns, turns too personal, she changes the subject. Right? Oh wait, I see, perceive that you're a prophet. Right? You've had five husbands. The, the man you have now is not your husband. She goes, I don't want to go down that road. Um, let me see if I can turn this conversation somewhere else. I perceive that you're a prophet. And you kind of want to look at her and go, I mean, that's the best you've got? And she changes the conversation to, well, let's have a presumed theological conversation about worship and proper worship and where it should be, this mountain or that mountain or which one is it going to be? And, and she even sort of kicks it down the road even further as Jesus answers and responds to her. Well, well, I know the Messiah will just make it all clear when he comes. She seems to be brushing him off and, and dismissing his responses. And it's not until verse 26 that he finally looks at her and says, I am he. You're waiting for the Messiah. Here I am. I'm the one that you've been talking about. And in that moment, the disciples come back, which sort of gives you this almost interruption in your thinking. But in verse, if you skip verse 27, verse 28, she left her jar and ran back into town. Did you notice 
with each sort of interaction, each layer of the conversation that she has with Jesus. She sees him in a different way. You're just a man and a Jew, whatever. And then all of a sudden, wait, you're you're offering me water. That's at least intriguing. And then suddenly he's a prophet. And then finally the Messiah. Is that not a picture of, of many of our conversions? Like we're around Jesus, we hear about Jesus, and, and we kind of know a little of this or a little of that until finally, ultimately, he actually changes our heart and draws us to saving faith in himself. And only then will we embrace him as the Messiah. We have this picture of Jesus bringing in the beginning of a harvest. And just because I know these thoughts run through your mind, I promise you the other two points are much shorter than the first Jesus bringing in the harvest. Second, I want you to see the bringers of the harvest. Did you notice verse 28 to 30? The first missionary is a Samaritan woman of questionable morals. And already you're thinking, okay, at some level, duh, right? I mean, at some level, well, of course it was. But at some level, you're thinking, hold on. All the Jewish Pharisee people, all the good people, all the moral people, all the people who knew the Bible, she's had no training, no evangelism explosion, no no whatever the next layer of evangelism training is or was. There's, There's no like discipleship. What she has is a story. Jesus knows me. And has drawn me to himself. He didn't do what everyone else in this town has done to me. He didn't put up a wall. He didn't stick out a hand. He didn't stiff arm me. He didn't tell me to go away. He asked me for water. No one treats me like that. No one knows me like he knows me. And still treats me that way. And it's interesting in verse 27 and then in verse 31, the disciples who are supposed to be, you know, Jesus is fine. He's going to be there. They're going to get training for three years. They're going to be sent out into towns. There's a, a couple of accounts in the uh, the other gospels of, of the disciples being sent into towns to, to, to evangelize, to talk about Christ, to, to share the gospel. And they get all sorts of, of responses. They don't seem to get it. They seem to need their thinking reframed. They, they say, I mean, the, the season, right? It's, it's harvest is four months away. Whatever, you know, the, the timing, however the calendar works um, in first century Israel. Um, the, the point is they're, they're four months off from, um, from harvest season. And Jesus says, no, we're not. It's always harvest season. There's always people around you who need the gospel. There are always people around you who need the gift of God, who need Jesus. They don't seem to have the eyes 
to see that. And so Jesus reframes their thinking, reorders their their thinking around the gospel, bringing in the harvest, the bringers of the harvest. And then finally, Jesus delights in the harvest. Did you notice verse 14? There's a there's an oddity in verse 14. Pay attention to pronouns. Who is Jesus talking to? A Samaritan woman. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. Why not her? Why not someone? Why does he suddenly insert the masculine singular pronoun? Okay, you you do realize that there are languages um, that have gender specific pronouns and the pronouns, the articles, uh, adjectives, they all have to follow the same gender as the, the thing they're modifying, right? That's true in Hebrew, it's true in Greek, it's true in French, it's true in all kinds of places, right? Um, but this is singular. Or there are places where there are languages where if you have a large group of people, a plural, plurality of people, and it involves both men and women, you use the masculine plural pronoun to include everybody. This is singular. Could it be that Jesus already is thinking about the man back at her house? It could be generic. It could be just plain old general. If I give somebody water, then that person won't be thirsty again. It will come in that person. It could be. But it may be that he's already in his mind and in his conversation with her, making her think about not just her own salvation, but the salvation of the man who's back at her house. Jesus seems to be possibly putting ideas into her head that he needs the gospel just like she does. There's a picture of Jesus delighting to bring in the harvest, delighting to gather men and women, boys and girls into his kingdom. And then in verse 40, because of her testimony uh, and because of of the salvation offered by Christ to this woman, a bunch of Samaritans believed in him, verse 39, because of her testimony. And then later, many more believed because of his word. And they even asked him, urged him to stay for two days. Now, humanly speaking, that can be a bit of a hassle, right? Okay, I've got to stay with these strangers, these people I don't know. I'm trying to get to Galilee. This is just going to waylay me. This is just going to delay my trip. Honestly, I'd rather just go. Humanly speaking, it's, um, it's an inconvenience to, ta- to stay two extra days. Unless, of course, it's your food to do the will of him who sent me. Unless you so delight in gathering in the harvest that you can call it your food, your nourishment to accomplish the purpose for which the Father has given you as a gift. 
to accomplish the work of God. And what is the work of God? Why did Jesus come? What was the, the purpose of his incarnation? It was to accomplish the salvation of this woman and this man and the people in that town and the people in this room. To free people from uh, oppression, from bondage to sin, to accomplish the salvation of the lost, to free us from those from from captivity to sin and guilt and to bring in a harvest of people who will dwell with him forever. Let me make just a couple of applications. First, surely you see sort of your own salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, pictured in this woman. Christ, by his grace, has has come to you, revealed himself By the power of his Holy Spirit, he's broken down your own barriers, whatever they may have been, different for each one of us as they no doubt are or were. So that we might see Christ as something beyond just an historical figure, something more than just a great moral teacher, but who is our Messiah, who is our Savior. Second, I don't know if John intended this or not. However, um, I think there's uh, there may be something going on with uh, the placement. Maybe this is all chronological. I don't know. But here's the thing. Um, John seems to be saying something with the ordering of John three and John four, because in John three, Jesus has an interaction with Nicodemus, a Pharisee who knows the law an uppity upper class. Jewish, he has all the credentials. And a Samaritan woman who has none of the credentials. And there seems to be this picture that the gospel is for everybody. A man, a woman, a Jew, a Samaritan, a outwardly moral person and outwardly immoral woman. There seems to be this picture in John 3 and 4 that the Jesus came for both of those people. A third application. Who's going to take that gospel to those people? Is that not what he's called us to do? Just as Jesus reframes, reframes the thinking of his disciples, so too maybe that's what we need to recognize that there's no one already moral enough that they don't need Jesus. And there's no one so immoral that they can't receive Jesus. The gospel is for both. And then lastly, let me just remind you, there's another time Jesus mentions being thirsty. It's when he's hanging on the cross. And as he's about to give up his last breath, he says, I thirst. He suffered for our guilt. He suffered for our shame. He suffered for our forgiveness. Which means you can trust Christ as your Savior because he has endured the pain and suffering of this life. The weakness of life in the flesh of growing thirsty and of suffering on the cross to satisfy the demands of the law and to pay For your deepest, secretest sin. Trust in him. 
He can and will forgive. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have endured uh, life in the flesh, that you have endured uh, suffering for us in our place, that you endured the punishment that our sin deserves, that you even went thirsty on the cross. Reminding us that you had given us living water, that you were giving us living water that would never ever run dry would you strengthen us would you nourish us would you would you fuel us by that spiritual hydration from the spring that wells up in eternal life in us and would you make us people who delight to share that message with others around us we ask all of this in christ's name and for his sake amen